know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full breaking news. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29, uh, 29 of Anglophies. I'm Alina. I'm Kaylee. And you'll notice that we are Raidenless today. Raiden has uh, succumbed to a Fifty Shades of Grey induced alcohol coma. She's an ex Raiden. She's pining for the fjords. We did warn her. We, we, we warned her so hard. We knew this was going to happen. We, we let her down, Alina. We let her down. We did. We should have thrown ourselves at that grenade with her. <laughs> Alas, we could not. All the alcohol, isn't that right, Raiden? Oh my god, so much alcohol. And none of it was enough? None of it was enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really here. And <laughs> I saw Fifty Shades last night. And there was a lot of smuggled in booze involved. And it wasn't enough. And I was out of rum and too many bottles of wine that Amanda, my fellow Smart Bitches reviewer, brought with her. And I drank both of them. And... It was still not enough. Yeah, that was that was an experience. Not a good one. But I threw myself on that grenade. A review will be forthcoming on Smart Bitches, but we'll talk about it here a little <laughs> bit. So the the topic of the month is adaptations and how they work and how they sometimes don't work. And what's the magic alchemy that makes it work? Fifty Shades didn't have it. I mean, when you're starting with source material, it's shit. That's kind of, you have to expect that. But still, ugh, ugh. It's actually uh, strangely topical, not just because of Fifty Shades, but there's been a, a Wheel of Time adaptation in the news lately. Um, so I, I, pr I promise to all the other uh, sci-fi fantasy fans who've been following it, they'll bring it up. We'll talk a bit about it, too. I'm not sure that was an adaptation so much as it was a producer-style tax dodge. Well, okay, yes, but I mean, I guess what I mean is we could talk about, you know, rights and the the scrapes uh, then the creators get into with the authors. So it's just, uh, it's interesting, the situation. Yeah, but l l let's get Fifty Shades over with. Yeah. We're itching to talk about this. I can't wait. <sighs> I, I, I don't have alcohol because I think you stole all my alcohol, but I'm excited. I did. I did. I did. Yeah, so I have read the first book. I didn't like it because it's badly written and promotes really terrible ideas of what BDSM is and what romance is and that abuse in a relationship is totally fine. Totally fine. The movie was surprisingly toothless. It was so boring. So, so biting is not Christian Grace kink? No. <laughs> I mean, we did sort of start out with the idea that we would drink every time Anastasia bit her lip. <laughs> but we ran out of booze. <laughs> <laughs> and it's boring. It doesn't have any sort of... It doesn't give you any reason to believe that these two are actually interested in each other. Except that Anastasia tells us she is. Um, Christian is just sort of... We'll get to Jamie Dornan and how awful he was. <laughs> in a minute 
but there's just no there's no there there and the sex was boring I thought there were three bright spots to the movie one of which was the slow version of Crazy in Love which I really enjoy I think Dakota Johnson is a fucking professional and she does the absolute best she can with the shit material she's given she works really hard at being charismatic and interesting when Anna as a character is not interesting at all she is somehow more milk toasty than Bella Swan that's a trick Bella Swan um, had a favorite search engine Anna doesn't even have email Right. Because that's realistic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at least that's the most fantastical movie, element of it all. Right. In the movie, at least, when she's like, no, you can't email me because my computer's down. Like, even the, the producer and the director were like, you can't sell this. Come on. I mean, she does have a sad little flip phone that she uses as her cell phone. So when she is at the bar and drunk dials Christian... Really, if she'd had a smartphone, she could have just drunk tweeted like normal people. <laughs> and the movie would have been over. It would have been fine. <laughs> but no. But no. Um, and the other bright spot is that, and this is, I think, a direct result of the director being a woman, is that all of the sex scenes are really focused on Anna's experience and Anna's pleasure. I, the camera didn't give a single solitary fuck if Christian Grey got off or not. He's barely involved. And I thought that was something that it's not something I actually expected to see in a movie, much less a popular movie. So there's that. I am concerned that movies two and three, which God help us, have already been greenlit. Are you joking? Oh no, they were greenlit based on strength of pre sale pre ticket sales alone. Uh um, are probably going to be helmed by men, and that's going to completely change the dynamic. Oh, they're not. Sam Taylor Johnson's apparently doing all of the films. Really? That's what she said. Okay, but Jamie Dornan must hate his life right now. Good! Yeah, he sure. knew exactly yeah, what he was signing up for. I have no sympathy for that man. I have no sympathy for the way that he has talked throughout promoting this film. No. The way he has been an absolute dick. I mean, Dakota Johnson is trying. She clearly resents the guy somewhat. There's a lot of jokes about how no chemistry they have, but at least she's trying. Actually, there's a lot of parallels there between uh, Dornan and Johnson with what happened with Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. Except yeah. um, Robert Pattinson was charming and at least acknowledged how grateful he was that these films had given him a leg up in his career. Jamie Dornan just isn't charming. He isn't much of anything except a serial killer. That, that's funny because I remember when, when Twilight was a thing, and you, we can talk about those as adaptations because I actually thought those movies, like the the, scru the script writing of those movies was so masterful that it took something that I thought was un un unsalvageable and really improved it. Like as unlikable as the story is and its premise, I thought those movies as adaptations were were like did such a better job telling that story and we all had such fun you know with the oh robert pattinson nobody hates twilight the way robert pattinson hates twilight but it all was kind of fun with 50 shades none of it is fun yeah hating the books is not fun because they're not just oh the like the, the message is just so harmful yeah i think I, that's also because with 
Twilight, as bad as the Twilight books are, you at least know that those are Stephanie Meyer's characters and that she had genuine affection, maybe a little too much affection for them, but that was her work. Mm. She's a great isn't E.L. James's work. Yeah. It's fan fiction. At least I'm glad a lot of the reviews are admitting or acknowledging that it was fan fiction, even if a lot of them don't seem to know what fan fiction is. Yeah. But I have been very surprised. I mean, some of the reviews aren't so much it's good as <coughs> it's better than it deserves to be. But the problems that are stated are that when it is faithful to the source material, it's terrible. And that's, well, that's been covered a lot in reports in interviews with Sam Taylor Johnson, where she talked about getting into fights on set with E.L. James, who was allowed the level of creative control that Hollywood has never given offers before. Yeah. I mean, never. And it stuns yeah. me that she's the one that got it. Yeah, there, there are definite points where you're like, wow, this line looked clunky on the page and then it comes out of the mouth of a real live human being and it's oh god no no one actually talks like this and you can't even do it as an affectation like I'm 50 shades of fucked up absolute worst line in the movie it is unsellable (laughs) and James Gordon doesn't fucking try okay I have a question would Charlie Hunnam have pulled it off uh, Charlie Hunnam probably would have at least shown his dick, so... <laughs> Charlie Hunnam must feel like the luckiest person in the world. Like, he dodged the biggest bullet. Yeah, I, I strongly yeah. suspect that most of the male actors in Hollywood who have, would, have been, would have been up for this role looked at the Fifty Shades fandom, looked at the cautionary tale of Robert Pattinson, and hopped on their noptopus and noped on out. <laughs> I like to think Charlie Hunnam was getting phone calls at four o'clock in the morning from a hushed British voice telling him, no, don't do it, man. You don't want to be there. Right. Yeah. This is one of the things that pointed out. People are saying, well, it's progress on a business level because it's a film directed by a woman, written by a woman, based on a book by a woman who's also the producer, but you still don't get dick. And that is a crucial point because this is still a Hollywood movie that's R-rated, that is still trying to appeal to this widest demographic as possible while being as vanilla as fuck. Yeah. even that will mean being really proud that, you know, of the American that Dakota Johnson is wearing, which I understand there's, you know, there is certainly a step forward in the fact that she is bushed up, but there's <laughs> that you is do. still very important because it's to promote female pleasure, but you don't get to see that part of it. There is still this big, well, we've got this far, you're not getting the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like the film is as vanilla as the book because that book is not that kinky or interesting. Yeah. It, it pretty much is. And. If the movie franchise just ended with this movie, where she's like, where Anna's like, okay, show me how far you want to go, and he does, and he savagely whips her, and she's like, fuck this. Uh, you know what? No. I'm not here for this. I'm not here for you. How about you go fuck yourself? I'm out. And it ends on that note. There were clearly people who either hadn't read the book or weren't expecting them to end at that point, because the credits come up and there was this audible groan from the audience. <laughs> well, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the movie or read the book, but that was that part of the ending was a topic of much um, dis- discussion and difficulty with the 
director and writer Andy L. James because the original ending that Patrick Marber, the very, very talented and acclaimed playwright who came in to rewrite the script, he wanted it to end with her saying the word red, which is the safe word. Mm-hmm. And E.L. James threatened to boycott the movie if they ended it like that. Boycott away, you terrible, terrible person. Yeah. E.L. James just came off as the creepiest person throughout this entire process. Like, oh starting God, with yes. her push for uh, Robert Pattinson as as Christian, you're like, you are not hiring a stripper to reenact your, you know, you're, sexual yeah. fantasies. Like, what are you doing? St- oh, my God. That person... The bit that made, I knew this was going to be bad once I heard of how much creative control she got, but several months ago, I believe it was the Today Show, had some on-set interviews. Johnson and Darning clearly did not want to be there, did not want to talk, did not want to acknowledge they were in this film, and E.L. James was glorying in the fact that she got to watch them film the sex scenes and talk about how hot they were. Oh. It made me oh. so uncomfortable. It made me more uncomfortable oh. than the fact that my 70-something neighbour said to my mum, oh, those books really got the juices flowing. <laughs> no. <laughs> my mother can't look at that woman in the eye anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. So much to Shades. But I have three avenues of discussion open to us to better things segueing from this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that is creative control, J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, female writers and Gone Girl, okay. and things that made it on screen and mocking J. Part 1. <laughs> which okay. one do you guys want to do first? Well, I want to go back to Twilight <laughs> movies for a second. Okay. And I think, I honestly think that one of the things that made the movie, the Twilight movies better and the character of Anna more, so much more tolerable was in a movie, you don't get their fucking internal monologue. That's very true. And Could once you imagine you get... if they'd done Fifty Shades with the internal monologue? Because we kept joking, how are they going to do the inner goddess thing? Could you imagine? If and they done... didn't. Oh. Praise God. Oh, oh, I know. You know that, I think it's a Pixar movie that's coming out. It's all about emotions inside. It's, it's... called Inside. That's how they should have done it. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Because then Amy Poehler would have been doing the voice as well. Oh, that would have been so much better. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so... one of the things with... Um, not just Fifty Shades and Twilight, but things like Harry Potter and The Hunger Games is the difficulty of adapting material that is wildly popular and so ubiquitous within the sphere of pop culture. Mm. Because you have these expectations with something like the first Harry Potter movies, which are the weakest, certainly the first two, because they are slavishly sticking to the source material to the point where it becomes workmanlike. It's like, well, we've got to do this bit then, we've got to do this bit then, we have to do this bit. And I understand why you would go that route, because there are fan expectations, but it's not that's not how you adapt something, and it very seldom works on the, page, <coughs> on the screen, unless you are nailing the tone, and often tone is sacrificed in, in favour of faithfulness to the material, which is one of the reasons Zack Snyder's Watchmen is a movie I will defend to an extent, but it's trying so hard to be the fanboy dream come true that parts of that movie are just terrible. Yeah. This is the reason I thought un- the unfortunate series of events adaptation worked, even though it smashed three books together, because I thought it kept to the spirit. Yeah. If anybody remembers those. Yeah. No, I have that on DVD. I might watch it later on in my snow day. I don't know. <laughs> the, the first two Harry Potter movies, they're visually beautiful, but Chris Columbus is not that strong or that nuanced of a director. And he's not... I don't think he's that original, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um... And then I understand you, why they'd hire him for because he's you know he's a workman's director he's not an auteur he's not someone coming in with a distinctive style yeah. so that wouldn't jar with the material but the issue is they then hired Alfonso Cuarón 
who is a director with distinctive style and ideas and themes, and he made what I think is the best Harry Potter movie. Word. That is true. And then, who the fuck did they get for the fourth? The fourth one isn't Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. It's Harry Potter and scenes from the Goblet of Fire. Was that David Yates? Didn't he direct all the finals? Hang on a sec, Google. There is that big problem for going from Azkaban to Goblet of Fire, that book doubles the, the in book size. The book doubles in size. Um, it's directed by Mike Newell. Yeah, and there isn't a very strong through line to the whole plot. And there's so many things that he throws in that you know make sense to readers of the book, like when Dumbledore mutters portentously, priori incantatum, and nods. It doesn't bother to explain exactly what that means. People who don't read the book is like, I have no idea what just happened. Well, that's a problem with the movies because, like, didn't they cut out everything about the Marauders map? But then suddenly, um, Lupin has it, or he's talking to Harry about it, and you're like, how? How did you know? Where did that come from? Like the the books, I I think the movies had that problem where maybe even as a book reader you wouldn't notice just because you know the plot. Yeah. Harry Potter got away with it to an extent because those books were so wildly popular and there was a guarantee people were going to go see those movies anyway. Mm-hmm. I think once they got to about movie three, when they realized we're going to be, be able to make all of these movies and we're going to make bank, there was a sense, well, we might as well just make it for the fans. And ultimately you do end up making sacrifices that will piss off the fans as well as the more general going public. Mm-hmm. And they got away with it to an extent as well with the seventh movie because they had the ability to split it into two, which is now the death mark of basically every series and film right now. Uh. You don't need to split your final book in two. Mockingjay doesn't need to be two parts and you just know the final 50 shades. Neither did The Hobbit. The Hobbit didn't need to be... How many movies is The Hobbit now? Four or five? (laughs) Twelve. It's three. And I, I, I I would like to talk about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings adaptations. Yeah, it's depressing, but we will, I promise. <laughs> um, but back to a question of J.K. Rowling and creative control, because I'm trying to remember how much she had. I know, I believe I've read reports that the old British casting was at her insistence. That sounds familiar. She didn't want it to be, um, like, she, she was afraid, I guess, that Hollywood would do... You know, the Dracula thing, remember we were talking about, you know, the Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves casting, and it was all about, oh, they're popular American actors, yeah, they're playing British, but whatever, we need butts and seats. So, maybe to avoid that is why J.K. Rowling kind of went there. No, you you guys are going to have to hire the British actors. (laughs) If I remember correctly, J.K. Rowling certainly got a level of creative control, but it was also necessary because she hadn't finished writing the books when the series started. So there were elements that she had to say, you can't do this because when this happens, when in the book I haven't Mm -hmm. finished yet, Mm -hmm. it needs to tie in. So I I think, if I remember correctly, she was the one that insisted Creature turns up in Order of the Phoenix, because they were originally going to cut him entirely. He says, no, 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 you need to lay the grounds there because he's very important in book seven. Yeah, I mean, I also suspect that even if they had been cool with her exercising a insane amount of creative control she wouldn't have been able to because she was you know writing books five six and seven at that point i mean it didn't stop has nothing else to do with her life right yeah. now so. that's true it, it didn't stop steve cloves from his love affair with hermione and hate on Ferran. yeah this is how you can tell the book readers apart from the non-book readers right <laughs> <laughs> but this is also this is the thing with jk rowling is she's also someone who's constantly reassessing her own work Mm-hmm. You know, even now when she has things like Pottermore and she's asked questions by fans and stuff that is something that's always growing that she's always thinking about she's always reconsidering 
And mm-hmm. I, I think that's a very smart move for a writer. It can have its flaws, but I would much rather have someone who's like, you know what, this bit of my book didn't work, then everything I did is wonderful, and you're misogynist for not liking it. Block. Right. <sighs> Hashtag team sad fuck. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what that's a reference to, uh, E.L. James referred to Mara Wilson, the former child actress turned badass Twitter um, star, um, a, a sad fuck for saying that her books promoted domestic abuse. Starting the best gang war on Twitter there has ever been. Yep. Uh, so if you have been blocked by E.L. James, and I'm convinced more people have been blocked by E.L. James than there are members of Scientology, welcome to the club. <laughs> <coughs> Here's how bad these books are. Like, I haven't read the books. I was following Mark Oshiro's read of them on YouTube, and he got about, I think more than halfway, about two-thirds of the way through the first one. And he's so entertaining when he does these, and I couldn't continue. No matter how good he was... It disgusted me to such an extent with its glorifying of abuse. Yeah. And I don't mean physical abuse of BDSM. I mean, like, actual relationship abuse. Yeah. Emotional abuse. And yeah. they, they did cut a lot of that out of the movie. Like, I had this this vain, and I know it was vain, a vain hope that people would see it on screen and go, oh, my God. Because it it's a different level of distance than reading it on the page. And go, wow, that is really horrible but they cut a lot of that stuff out which on the one hand that's good but on the other hand you don't see what you're glorifying here i think that also presents its own whole heap of problems which is when there is material that is that damaging and that horrid and it is really for a lot of for a lot of filmmakers and the crew and stuff the only way is up but if you're going to cut that stuff do you do a disservice in a way that you're not willing to let people see just how bad this material is, but you're still willing to make money off of it, which is one of the big reasons I have a problem with it, being all these people saying, well, it's not as bad as the book. It's like, well, that's almost worse in a way, particularly because E.L. James has had such creative control over it, she can now somehow take credit for this. Yeah. What's interested me is how many... is the divide here. What I'm reminded of is when Cleo said, uh, I can't distance myself properly from the Twilight films because all I think is, wow, this could have been way worse. Mm-hmm. And I've been seeing that from a lot of people who did read the books and I've also been seeing from people who didn't read the books this is kind of terrible. These people aren't nice. This isn't a nice man. What is she doing with him? And I found that very interesting, especially when it comes from men. Because I was so worried that uh, maybe I'm not giving men enough credit. I, I give men too much credit. But I was worried that a lot of male male critics were just going to think, oh, this is silly lady porn and not actually analyse it properly. And there have been critics that have done that because, hey, sexism. But there have been a surprising number who have engaged with the material in a way that I'm very thankful for. Yeah. And a number of them seem to have gone out and read the book too, for which I can only apologise. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't need to do that. Nobody asked you, darling. <laughs> I mean... To me, all I needed is the scene where after the first time he he talk, he spanks her and she didn't like it. And she he leaves and she's on the phone literally sobbing to her mother. And he bursts back in and berates her for not yeah. being good at pleasing him. They didn't do that. I mean, they did the spanking scene and she, was, she does talk on her phone. Hey, you know what, guys? There are a bunch of spoilers in the podcast. <laughs> I should have figured that out by now. Anyway, um... <laughs> And she is on the phone to her mom, and her mom's like, what's wrong? I can tell from your voice. And she's like, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. And then instead of she's in her bed crying, and her roommate's like, what the fuck just happened? And calls up Christian and is like, what the fuck did you do? She's sobbing hysterically, and it's because of something you did, and you're an asshole. 
and that's what brings him back. They didn't do any of that. So there's just no way to make that look as anything other than like than th- terrible. There's, yeah, yeah th- you can't clean that up. That's no. okay. So that brings into a lot of questions as well, not just regarding Fifty Shades, but with other difficult material. Is the responsibility of the people who are making it, not just the director and the writer, but the studio? Because I doubt anyone looked at Fifty Shades and thought we're going to make the next secretary or nine and a half weeks or something like that they thought we're going to make money mm-hmm. so at what point did you say we need to worry less about money and more about what we're saying i actually don't know if there is a point in for a lot of hollywood studios when it comes to that which is incredibly depressing mm-hmm. but there must have been a point where even sam taylor johnson said to herself this, we need to do something with this material if i have to wrestle it from el james's cold grip and she must have done it to a certain extent, because otherwise she wouldn't have people who are saying that she's done a good job in a lot of this. Because mm-hmm. there are a decent amount of people that are saying that. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, but for E.L. James, the worst thing she can read online right now is any any review that says Sam Taylor Johnson somehow improved on her material. You know that would just get her teeth grinding. Like, even ones that, don't, that really, really don't like the movie, and there are a lot of those as well, are saying... It's a step up from what is a terrible book. Okay, pulling us back off Fifty Shades for a second, because I know we keep wandering back into it. So We could talk about it for years. There's <laughs> so much just... pent-up anger over it. I'm sure it's the future foundation of a lot of PhDs. <laughs> um, Gone Girl. Now, this is a book, there was a book specifically about horrible people. This, was, this didn't stumble into accidentally being about horrible people. This was about horrible people. I haven't read the book, but I've recently seen the movie. Um, Kaylee, I think you've you've read it, right? Yeah. yeah, I've read the book and I've seen the film, and I actually really like the film. I bought it for myself as a Valentine's present. Aww. Here's my uh, question: Do you think yeah, the I've, film? I've read it and I've seen the movie too. So, do you two think that the 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 characters in the film come off as badly as they do in the book? Because I kind of, from what I've heard about the book, it feel the film feels a little milder. I think some critics are a little too soft on the Ben Affleck character because I think he is a dick in the film. But the issue is the book is told from a he said, she said point of view. One chapter will be from Nick in the present day as his wife has gone missing and another chapter will go to um, Amy's diary leading up to events and then it all switches around with the big reveal, which Mm -hmm. we're going to have to talk about. Spoiler spoiler alerts for Gone Girl. Okay? The issue is... I actually think it's a very solid adaptation because it's Gillian Flynn's own work. She's she adapted it herself, so she has a hold of the material. She knew what, all of the themes, and I think she nails a lot of the themes people don't give her credit for, like the proliferation of cable news, the twisting of the perpetual female victim, the man is always to blame stuff. I think she's done really well, but there are obviously for time. It's like two hours forty minutes, so it's a long movie, but there are still things they have to cut. So, for instance, one of the things that they keep in is the ex-boyfriend of Amy that she accused of rape to ruin his life. But what they don't keep in is the friend, the female friend she had, who she managed to trick into doing a single white female situation, but, you know, why are you so obsessed with me situation in order to get revenge on her. By omitting that, but keeping in the false rape part, which is a huge issue, but it's not supposed to be a good thing. Yeah. There is that unfortunate slant that I think has been picked up by a lot of people, a lot of terrible people as well, let's be honest, that somehow the film is glorifying hatred of men and glorifying a particular attitude that women would have towards men and the idea that women lie about rape all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that cutting that one was, for me, the big flaw of that movie, because otherwise I think there's a lot in it that she did so on point. I don't think Nick is a nice person. I think you do lose a lot of the punch because it's not you're not hearing his inner monologue you're not hearing how he's twisting certain things for himself because he is the perpetual quote-unquote nice guy and then something will happen where he'll sort of slip up and realize oh i'll have to explain this and then oh actually i am fucking this young woman on the side and oh i've been lying about this and that i think the movie does a lot of that well but because you're not hearing it from his point of view but you are hearing amy throughout Mm -hmm. you don't quite get the 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 war between the two of them and I think that would have worked better as a miniseries in that aspect. But in terms of nailing the tone, I think Fincher and Flynn got it. It's a bleak tone but it's also really darkly funny. There are some proper laugh out loud moments in that film, mostly when Amy is shoving fast food into her mouth and yeah. every scene Neil Patrick Harris is in. Man, that... a, lot, a lot of that movie rests on casting as well. I think doing a great adaptation of that material rests on getting those characters right and you need actors who can pull that off and I think for the most part I, I think Ben Affleck is perfect for that role I, think I have bigger issues with Rosamund Pike um well okay I'll ask about Rosamund Pike but Neil Patrick Harris the character comes off as kind of creepy in the film kind of is he supposed to be this kind of shit okay very <laughs> creepy in the film it was weird because I, I don't know I guess I I I kind I basically I was spoiled going into the film. Um, there was a lot of talk about it, and watching it was kind of a spur of moment idea. So I think I formed a completely wrong impression of him from the very sparse spoilers I did pick up as like a hapless victim. But then he's like, oh no no, this 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 is a very creepy person. Right. This is a safe place. You, there is no reason for you to ever leave, ever. The thing that I really loved about the Neil Patrick Harris casting is just how smart it is and against type. It's very much an instance of when comedic actors go serious. He's not known exclusively as a comedic actor, but he's certainly known as being this big, warm, happy, charismatic personality. And I've always thought that Desi is basically what Barney from How I Met Your Mother would be like if he was a real person and there was no laugh track. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really well done. And he does represent the other side of Amy Dunn in terms of, well, she wants this man to just sort of keep up with her and in a way Desi does, but not in the way that she can entirely control. And that pisses her off. Mm-hmm. So she has to eat more ice cream. Yep. Well, speaking <laughs> about casting against type, Tyler Perry has made big headlines for off this movie. He's really good and it freaks me out. Because it's Tyler Perry. And right. he's so good at it. He's actually really perfect for that character because he's the one that has to punctuate just how damn stupid everything is. Because the movie is inherent, the story is inherently very melodramatic, and he needs to come in now and then and just sort of laugh very heartily and just like, "You're all terrible people. I'm a terrible person as well, but you are a whole new level of terrible." But in terms, actually, when you want to go back to, does the movie successfully get what the book is going for? I think that the ending trips a little bit. Because there's a bit at the end where, spoiler alert, Amy is, has impregnated herself with Nick's sperm and essentially trapped him for life with her. And he has to explain this to her, his sister, and his sister says, you want to stay with her. You're just convincing yourself otherwise, but you want to be with her. And he kind of admits to himself, I do. You know, I am a terrible person. I want this terrible person. And they, they, they sort of gloss over that in the mm-hmm. film a little bit. Um, which I thought was disappointing because really? Cause I, I, I love that ending. I got that. Like I know it was very. I agree with you that it was a very 
quick moment and that entire ending with the sister was a little rushed but as somebody who hasn't read the book um like i didn't miss it and i didn't skip over like i very clearly got that so maybe that makes it a little better well that's one of the other the a big problem which is the the reader who's seeing the film versus the viewer who hasn't read it mm -hmm. there's always going to be a different level of expectations and gone girl has been a very popular book so those expectations were always there it's been really fun to watch people talk about it, though, because how do you hop around that, the big elephant in the room with that book and that story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I know, I would... Obviously, <laughs> Are you still drunk? I'm sorry. I'm, yes. <laughs> uh, I did a review of Wild on Smart Bitches, and one I'm of the so things... I'm so glad you liked it. Oh my god, it's the best movie of 2014, hands down. Um, and... One of the things that I talked about was how Reese Witherspoon ha got the the rights to Gone Girl because she wanted to play Amy Dunn, and then Fitcher was like, eh. And instead of going off in a pout, like a lot of people would expect a A-list Hollywood actress to do, she's like, okay, no problem. I'm going to stay on as producer, though, and has been super supportive of Rosamund Pike and how Witherspoon has been promoting female-driven movies. And somebody said in the comments, well, do you really consider Gone Girl to be, like, a positive thing for women? Because I haven't read it, and I haven't seen it. Sorry. But, I mean, what I get from, from what's being talked about this movie is that it just boils down to bitches be crazy. And I said, well, no. It's one, it's not that simple, and that it doesn't make any bones about the fact that everybody here is terrible. Like, okay, the cop is not exactly a terrible person, but all of your main characters are terrible, terrible, awful people, and that being able to say, look, here is a female psychopath, and this is what that looks like that means that you can't just peg people in positive roles all the time and say well that's progress yeah. and that <clears throat> being able to explore <clears throat> the other side is also important and that not just limiting it down to a character that is a single trope or two but a more well-rounded, three-dimensional version of of the female psychopath is what I think Gone Girl gives us. Like, Glenn Close in the wedding dress, you know, is, oh, look at that horrible, <clears throat> obsessed woman and what she did. Fatal Attraction was always screwed over by uh, the studio as well. The original ending to that movie was that she killed herself and frames Michael Douglas to get rap the rap for murder, and they changed it because people wanted to see the quote-unquote bitch die. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that at least there wasn't studio meddling on Gone Girl on that front. Because mm -hmm. they could easily have stepped in and said, we will reach a bigger audience for this very difficult material if we have, I don't know, Ben Affleck knife her when she sleeps or something like that. And there are other directors who I think would have gone along with that. Not Fincher. I think Fincher has a better eye for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but fortunately enough, um, when you have that director and the, the writer adapting her own material... You kind of skip that. But there are examples of 
big studio meddling that have screwed over a lot of adaptations. Like, I don't know, top of my head, Golden Compass. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to adapt his dark materials, don't cut the religious allegories out. That's the whole freaking point. You were never gonna do it right. Why did you touch it? Yeah. You had the perfect casting. The, yeah, with such good cast. <sighs> Sorry. That that one still angers me, even though I have the issues. With that one still smarts. <laughs> that that does. Oh. It really does. Oh. I did bring up. <clears throat> excuse me the Hunger Games earlier with kind of the big reveal scenes and what they're doing. <laughs> and so the uh, Mockingjay part one was one of the bigger movies. And as somebody who's read the books, and I've been enjoying the movies, but um, that one is to me a good example of, I get to enjoy it as a book reader because to me it's kind of just a, a pretty illustration to go along with the books I loved. But I'm not so sure they did that great a job for people who haven't read the books because I think they left out a bit too much, at least in the first one. But this third one, when they split it into two parts, I immediately knew where they were going to end it. And spoiler alert, as usual, but they were going to end it. I, I was so convinced that the last scene would be when Peta attacks Katniss and tries to kill her no. because it's such a big moment. Um, so when I'm in the movie theater and I was getting, like, it's getting to that part and I'm just, you know, I'm tensing up and I, and I want to see who around me hasn't read the book. And you could tell because the woman beside me screamed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought they did it so well. Now these, the people who made this movie understood what a big moment it was and they went all out. It was so violent. In some ways I think it was more violent than it came off on the page. But just physically, they made it last a while. He's throwing her around that room. She's crashing into glass cabinets. And it was great. It was everything I wanted out of that scene. I, it needed to be violent. It couldn't be something that viewers could excuse easily, even though the, the movie didn't end there. It went into the explanation of his being brainwashed. Um, I thought it was set up so well. And um, that that particular adaptation made me happy. Like, See, this 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 was an example of adapting difficult material well even though you might not be able to say that for the entire series because i think it the movies gloss over the physical and emotional trauma and ptsd that these kids suffer i don't think they do that well enough but uh and i kind of think that they did this well enough because uh i don't know if it's executive meddling or just like the or maybe it was the director vision it kind of comes off a little bit more of a love story than it does in the book like they concentrate in that more and a lot less on the, the brutality. Um, and that's a little disappointing, but I think that's why this scene was the one where they didn't skimp on, on the horror, what's happening. And um, that made me look forward to the next movie. <laughs> Hopefully Do you think that might be one of the benefits of them splitting that movie into two is that you have more time to, to really dwell on these kind of key scenes of emotion, of the trauma that otherwise would have been cut out because, hey, it's an action movie and we need to get the 18 to 34 male demographic? I do think so. I, I think that unlike, um, like, say, The Last Harry Potter or a lot of the other movies that were split into two that didn't have to, this one actually has a very natural kind of part one, part two feel to it. Um, so I'm, I don't think that's what drove the decision. I think it was money and timing and et cetera, but I think luckily for them, this book also lends itself really well. So A, you have that big moment to end on that people who haven't read the books are going to stew on and it's going to, you know, pump them up for the next movie because they need to hear this explanation now. They need to see it get over, but also because they have that part one in district 13, but then part two is the 
military, you know, excursion into the capital, very natural kind of two, two arcs, um, I think it works in their favor. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, one of the things I really liked about the first Hunger Games movie is taking, taking it out of the arena from Katniss so that you see how the games are made, how it is orchestrated like a television show and the effect that it has on the outside world. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, one of the reasons that I think that in many ways that film is so succeeds better at its aims in the book in certain ways. I know that may be a bit controversial to say, but because the popular way to write a YA novel is first person present, it can Mm -hmm. be very limiting. And that's one of the problems you have with adapting first person novels without just having swaths of interior monologues and narration, Mm -hmm. because that just becomes exhausting. Yeah. I think it works even better in the this say this third movie because when you actually get to see the consequences of Katniss's actions, you know, you actually get to see the rebellion develop. I think that that's where taking it out of her head is really beneficial. Yeah. Um, okay, here's a question then: Are there any instances of an adaptation where narration is used that you think work really well? Because I have a really good one. Okay, you go ahead. I have to think about it. Okay, yeah. I have two ones. One is slightly not... It's a bit of a cheat because it's not narration all the way through, but it's Princess Bride. Mm. Okay. But that's already built into the book. Yeah. You know, I am reading this story to my grandfather. That's already there. Mm-hmm. The second one is a new one. It's Inherent Vice, which I saw a couple of weeks ago, and I loved <laughs> it. was so good. But that's not in the book. You know, there, it, what happens is... The basic plot of the story is it's a detective novel, and detective novels and film noir very historically have this sort of you know, Humphrey Bogart still narration. So there's a historical precedent they're going for. But what the what Paul Thomas Anderson has done is taken large bits of that book and just turned it into to a narrative, and had it narrated by Joanna Newsom, which is amazing because it's Joanna Newsom. Mm-hmm. But that one of the reasons I really liked that movie because it's Paul Thomas Anderson people. But it's so perfectly nails the tone of that book, and it is a very difficult book to nail. It's a book where you will be reading it and then when someone asks you 200 pages in to explain what's happened you will have no idea you can say well this happened and this thing happens yeah but what happens I don't know and I loved how the film managed to be surprisingly traditional in its adaptation it is basically just the book made film there's no real diverging from the story in that way but also managed to make it as hallucinogenic as the book as weirdly melancholic as ridiculous ridiculous and over the top and funny as it is it's a whole mishmash of tone and it works and it's so funny and it's Paul Thomas Anderson and it's so good everyone should go see it but th- okay. that's really interesting as well because nobody has ever adapted a Thomas Pinchon novel before because his work has been considered unadaptable because it's so dense and full of labyrinthine plots and ridiculous characters and things that are probably impossible to film so the fact that someone managed to take that on is always going to be really surprising. But you, you also have a certain level of expectation with adapting that writer, but you also have the luxury that not a lot of people have actually read him. It's not like, you know, the Twilight books where hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of copies of those books or whatever have been sold. Mm-hmm. This one is a little more... I don't want to say hipsterish, but it's a really hipstery movie. Ooh. I'm going to say hipster. It's very hipsterish. Not a bad thing necessarily. I think I'm more of a hipster than I'd care to admit. 
And that was also a really fascinating contrast because Paul Thomas Anderson has already adapted a book before. There Will Be Blood is based on a Upton Sinclair book, but it is nothing like the book. I get the feeling he read that book once and thought, I'm going to make a movie of that, but didn't read the book at all while he was writing the film. And that works to the film's favour. You know, it is not really aping on that book so much as it is other films and other ideas and just letting Daniel Day-Lewis go wild. So you have that sort of route. Do you go really, really faithful, or do you think, I'm going to capture the spirit, but it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to adapt the book straightforward. Mm. And there are benefits no matter what way you do, it depends on the book, I guess. I think you can get away with that more if it's a book that very few people have read. I, I guess it depends on whether the 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 original work is something that has it, like, where the plot is the point of it, or where it's kind of the the feel of the world is the point. And I think depends how plot-driven the book is as well, yeah. I guess. Do you, you know, are you reading it because of the plot, or are you reading it because I love these characters, or I really love the themes that this is going for? Yeah, exactly. Um, like, oh. People are not reading Fifty Shades for the plot. <laughs> no. They're reading Go- it for the emails. Oh, uh, God. Going back to your question, I don't know if this qualifies as narration, but maybe Fight Club? I think Fight Club is a far better movie than that book deserves. <laughs> Yeah. This is something I th- I think David Fincher gets Fight Club better than Chuck Palahniuk gets his own book. I think he has bought into his own mythology of that book so much. I think he has, you know, the way that certain people will have posters of Scarface on their wall because they think, yeah, it's cool. Instead of, hey, that movie's about how horrible d- drugs are, so people watch Fight Club and think, hey, fighting's cool. Instead of, no, it's about how destructive this entire system is. I feel like Chuck Palahniuk does not realise what he wrote his own book about now. Mm-hmm. And I think that David Fincher was very smart in ad- adapting that book, and I'm sad that so many people missed the point of it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, here's my example of, uh, my go-to example of movie was better when the, than the book, and that's Devil Wears Prada. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It works so much better as a movie. I mean, I have I have some issues with the movie, but that... Oh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> but I mean, part of the reason it, is it Stanley does Tucci. Have a much better through line and plot line than the book does. If you're gonna have Stanley Tucci, he's immediately gonna make it better than whatever it was before him. <laughs> have, you, have you read the toasts post on if Stanley Tucci was your boyfriend? H- have you seen that his wife then? Yes. Her <laughs> response was amazing. She says it's all true. Just add, we'll uh, do the diaper duty at four in the morning. <laughs> Hashtag keeper. Oh, okay. Well done, Felicity Blunt. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I had problems with that movie, too. There was that part of it. Where, but I, part of the problems I had with the movie were actually just came from the book, which it seemed like everybody was judging the main character for having a job to do. Yeah, exactly. That, that was my main problem. <laughs> they're like, why are you putting up with this shit? It's, you're not doing what you want to do. It's like, have you never done entry-level anything ever? But here's what's really funny about that is I know there's a sequel. I I've read the first book. I haven't read the sequel. I picked up like the sample, the Kindle ebook sample, and just from that first two chapters or whatever was women, you can clearly tell that she wrote it as a sequel to the film and not to her own book. Oh, God. And that is just hilarious. Because <laughs> suddenly, because. In the film ends with Andy and her counterpart Emily kind of on these weird friendly terms of where they understand yeah. each other, and the book does not. But then the second book opens with them being business partners <laughs> and best buddies. Weird. Oh, okay. somebody knew where the money was, and that was in the film adaptation. 
Yeah. I, I kind of love that she just went with that in a way where she just admitted, well, this is what people want and it's clearly better than what I've done. Yeah. More people should do it. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. I'm pulling us back. We've mentioned okay. Lord of the Rings okay. because I have recently made the humongous mistake of watching uh, The Fellowship of the Ring with the director commentary on. I've never done that before. I've only ever watched them straight. It, it came this close to ruining the entire experience for me. It just made me so angry that Peter Jackson, of all people, is the one who got this. Really, oh, and now I, I understand exactly why the Tolkien estate wants nothing to do with him anymore. I'm sorry, I might be overreacting a little bit. I, you know, I don't agree with you at all. I, I thought the director's commentary was really interesting. It was interesting in the like the behind the scenes kind of. I always love that kind of stuff. But when you get to the point with um, where Gandalf and Saruman are having a conversation and. Peter Jackson goes, I really don't like magic. I really I mean, didn't want I, him to be I wizard. I interpreted that as I don't like having to try and film magic because it's just a guy standing on a tower portentously saying words and there's not any real action there. I don't and know. he's not wrong. That, that's not what it came off as to me. To me, it really came off with is that magic doesn't interest, like, as a plot device like as a thing in books it doesn't interest him to me it is like why did you take a book about wizards then i don't know there seemed to be a lot of i did i didn't like his his attitude towards the work he took upon himself to adapt i i i'm not as a um, that's not my biggest problem with pure jackson my biggest problem with pure jackson is you know basically george lucasing himself yeah um but for me, Peter Jackson's biggest failure in terms of adaptation was his film of The Lovely Bones, which is not a book that I'm especially fond of, but at least it didn't glorify the idea of dying young in the way that the film does by making this afterlife out to be this wonderful, perfect place and everything's so much better here and yay, pretty, because we've got this effects budget and we might as well use it. I've, it's such a tone-deaf adaptation. I'm stunned that it got made. Originally, it wasn't going to be made with him. It was going to be made by a Scottish director called Lynn Ramsey, and she got kicked off the project. Perhaps because she admitted that she hated the second half of the book and wanted to do other things with it. <laughs> I don't know. One but she also made a really wonderful adaptation of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which cuts away so much of the the dialogue, of the sort of interior monologue of that character, but manages to nail exactly what that book is about and the ambiguity of that lead character you don't need to do swaps of dialogue to do that if you're a skilled enough director and you you understand your material you can do it i think uh, but there are so many directors who don't understand their own material and i don't i i i think peter jackson to an extent does i but i think that he is getting not just to george lucas he's getting a little bit zack snydery he doesn't understand that you need to be able to understand that what you're adapting isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. Because nothing's perfect. I mean, I think I think definitely with The Hobbit and that... I mean, yet yeah, no, it didn't need to be three movies, but as I've said before, I had eight and a half hours of Richard Armitage brooding at me, so I'm good. Um, but I, I think adding Tariel was a good move, because 
boy, that book is a sausage fest. I mean, all those books are a sausage fest. Yeah. And they saying, fuck it, we can have at least one woman in here. And it's not going to make the world end. But then executive med- meddling made it a love triangle because we need love triangles. Yeah. Well. God, hate, hate. Women, am I right? <laughs> right. <laughs> just can't make up their minds. Sorry. Just... Right. Although and, this this one wasn't well, even a case of her not I am making it. I'm delighted that the the posts on Tumblr of Legolas and Thrandil as father and son have been adorable. <laughs> Anything with Lee Pace is adorable. Yeah. I may be biased. You know what I was thinking of earlier when we were talking about, I think we were talking about, J- oh yeah, J.K. Rowling and how she had to have control because she needed to tell them what's going to work in the movie for the future books and whatnot. And it made me think of Game of Thrones and George Martin. <laughs> because that the is... The world's most oh. expensive fan fiction is coming God. to God. Yes. Okay, so the, the level of clusterfuckery in that is reaching epic proportions. Now, here's kind of the, the basis of the story. The basis of the story is that George Martin actually told um, the producers, d and I know it's one, Denise, if I don't remember the other one. Um, Who cares? Hmm? Who cares? Yeah. So he told D&D, <laughs> as the fandom calls them, the two producers, yeah. the basic outline of the plot. So that in case he died, in case he Robert Jordan does... They would know what to do. At this point, D&D said, okay, and then looked at the books and said, fuck it, we're doing our own thing. They've, uh, George Martin has been vocal that they've made changes which by now make the, his ending basically impossible or at least very difficult. Um, on the other hand, I don't know whether this was really the producer's decision or more like HBO's decision. They said, we're capping it at seven seasons and they are for sure getting there before George Martin gets to his last book. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting. Because... Yeah, he's saying that you're, we're not going to get Winds of Winter this year at all. <laughs> I, I sympathize with George R. R. Martin. I think a lot of the discussion about him finishing that series has been unnecessarily cruel and morbid. Oh, yeah. But in terms of just your basic business decision, I have no idea how he's getting away with this. And I wonder if this is going to affect viewership in a way. I mean, it's still going to be one of the most watched TV shows ever, but I don't think... I, I do think that there will be people who are like, I don't want to watch the show until the books come out. Or this will in many ways affect my reading of the books. I'm not sure how I want to approach this. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I mean, maybe this is just my little bit of that fandom, but from my experience, most of the viewers have basically separated them into two entities because A, they are so different at this point that you know the plot is not is not going to yeah. be anywhere near the same. And I'm actually, I it would amaze me if the ending was anything similar to the books because why would it be nothing else is mm-hmm. it wouldn't yeah. be the first time you've seen something like this i mean the ending to true blood is nothing like the suki stackhouse books yeah which is um... probably a good thing from what i understand from fans <laughs> reaction to that but um I, I i stopped watching that show for a long time ago so it didn't bother me there's um <clears throat> There's this funny joke, it was from a, one of the con panels where people were talking, I mean, it, it's kind of this, you know, ongoing joke that, oh my god, George Martin kills so many characters, but he pointed out that actually the TV show has killed characters that are still alive in my books, so I'm only the second most murderous person at the stable. Yeah. I, I, I do doubt the, um, how good that those final seasons are going to be just because of that conflict. 
but um, I can't wait to see them try. If nothing else, it's going to be the most expensive fan fiction ever made after Fifty Shades of Grey. It's still very pretty, but it's also made changes to the characterization. Um, well, this past season, um, one of the big problems that a lot of book fans have is the changes they made to the character of Jamie. Now, here's the problem with this. It's it's not just a show filled with like despicable people, but it's a show with, with people doing a lot of things that are not even morally great. They're bad. Jamie Lannister straight up tries to murder a kid in the in the first episode of, yeah. the, of the show. That is not something you should be able to get over. He becomes a point of view character, so he kind of becomes more sympathetic just because you know him as a person. Maybe you have to keep on reminding yourself that, hey, he's straight up trying to murder a kid. But the one line, Jamie Lannister very specifically does not cross in these very, very rape-filled books, is Jamie Lannister has never committed a rape. He's never forced a woman. Not only that, but he, it is a crime that is morally abhorrent to him. It's something he judges other men for doing. Whereas the TV show basically said, oh, well, all this other rape happens. What's the problem with Jamie doing it too? Yeah. I've seen a lot of fans have a lot of problem with that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that in the aftermath of that particular scene, the people making official comments were the actor Nikolai, who plays Jamie, D&D, and the director of that episode, who was a dude, but no one has gotten a comment from Lena, who plays Cersei. And in the early seasons, Game of Thrones had a number of female directors, and I believe a number of female writers, and there weren't any in this most recent season, and it shows... It's very systematic. It's a very systematic proof of the not just the misogyny in this industry, but the misogyny in those not just the books, but just must be going on on that set for them to think, oh well, one more rape won't hurt. <coughs> and I'm so sick of the it's historically accurate excuse. These books have fucking dragons in them. Right. It's very interesting. There's there's uh, a Tumblr account by um, a woman yeah. who's. Uh, Meta, Meta Monday? Yeah, Meta Monday. She's, she's a medieval history professor. So she has Meta Mondays in which she takes an element of the books and then um, she basically talks about what, what historical thing inspired them and whether or not it actually matches up. And she points out that a lot of... And this actually isn't unique to Game of Thrones because I feel like a lot of books like Wheel of Time or that kind of medieval setting fantasy does this. They imagine this bleak world. And she points out that, for example, illegitimate children of rich people didn't necessarily have it that bad because they were rich. Yeah. Also, a lot of them were legitimized or given titles or whatever. <laughs> or if you have... An, or, for example, the not-so-subtle racism of having the, the Dothraki race obviously based on people who aren't white and then be this, oh, they're savage and practically bestial. Look at all the violent sex they have everywhere and they're killing people and and she points out that well probably based a lot on say like the mongol empire which was one of the most like law rule of law places on earth at the the height of its power in fact you couldn't just go around murdering and raping people so she points out a lot of like she breaks down a lot of that it's historically accurate arguments it's not even remotely true this is something where adaptations, as well as the history itself, get used as a 
a shield, which is, well, we have to put this really nasty, violent, dangerous, problematic bit into the film because it's in the book or because this is how history did it. And it's like, no, you don't. You are not, you're not a copy machine. You know, you have some level of autonomy here. Yeah. I mean, are there going to be, would, would there really be, uh, I, I, yes, the answer is probably yes, but would there be people who were genuinely angry if a character didn't get raped on Game of Thrones? Probably. Well, the thing you is, know how fanboys are. The, the show actually puts way more rape in that, like, for example, they made, to me, um, the first season, the relationship between Daenerys and her husband, the show, to me, destroyed that from the beginning by making their wedding night rape when it wasn't in the book. Now, you could say that, you could put, you could argue that, well, it is in the book because she's too young to consent, and maybe this is medieval times, but I'm a modern person, so, like, I'm going to judge, and that's perfectly valid. But it doesn't change that what the show made was so much worse and so much more unambiguous. Yeah, I mean, Amelia Clark has talked about that, and how she and Jason Momoa both kind of advocated for how it turned out because without Danny's internal monologue seeing consent and then seeing him raping her after that would be weird and I don't know if I totally buy that argument but I do like the fact that both of them were sort of involved in that decision and are willing to talk about it yeah, at least there's that, but I, to me it was difficult as somebody who, in the books, I could at least buy the relationship developing, in the in the TV show I really just couldn't. So this, I guess, is a jumping point for me to bring up what I mentioned, what we mentioned before with Wheel of Time and the, how do we hold on to rights when we are not actually ready or willing to make the show? <laughs> um, Wheel of Time is... I actually think it predates, uh, pretty sure it predates uh, Game of Thrones, but it's one of those quintessential, humongous, multi-book, medieval, epic fantasy <laughs> um, book series that's important to a lot of us who read those things. Uh, it's important to me. I, I actually made a lot of people in my life through it. Uh, I stopped reading it halfway through because... This is one of those things that just like uh, Song of Ice and Fire, it was conceived as a trilogy... And then, you know, six books in, the author decided I have seven more in me. <laughs> oh, God, it's ridiculous. Only he didn't. Only he didn't. <laughs> we just need to... Oh, too soon? <laughs> um, yeah, he... I, I stopped reading in book eight because I, I bought book eight, read it, closed it, said to myself, but nothing happened. Because literally, it was... An 800-page book in which nothing happened. Not a single character had moved on in the plot from the beginning of the book to the end. And then I realized, not, well, okay, now you are just taking advantage of me for money and I'm not giving you any more. So, but it's been, talks about TV shows and even like video games and MMOs and everything has been on for, going on for a long time. Because, I mean, this is a series from the 90s, so all throughout the 2000s there were rumblings. And it has been optioned. And this happened, I think, a couple of weeks ago. The option was about to run out, so they, the, the production company did the thing that once upon a time happened to the Fantastic Four, where a TV pilot that really wasn't meant for consumption because it wasn't actually meant to be a real pilot was made in like two days, mm -hmm. <laughs> aired at 1 a.m., uh, and it was to all 
reports horrendous. I I didn't have time to watch it. My husband, who was also a big fan of the books, watched it and said he hated everyone. It didn't want to live in this world anymore. It was that bad. Literally, his first text to me after seeing it was, I hate everyone. <laughs> he took it very, per- as a fan of the books, he took it very personally how badly that was made. Um, and then, so then, you know, it leaks online. And, you know, the story of how it's the only made to retain right leaks online. And then Robert Jordan's widow says, this was done without the knowledge of the estate and it's horrible and we don't support it. And then the production company sues her for slander. Because that will win people over to your side. Definitely. That always works. This is the problem with optioning things for adaptation. But optioning happens so frequently. It's just part of the industry. We're going to buy the rights. We're not necessarily going to make them. But we'd like to hold on just in case this thing does actually blow up and we can make some money out of it. Yeah. That's quite normal, but for them to actually make the step to make a one-day pilot, because I don't even think it was two days. I think it was one day. Might have been. That's new. That's that's very rare. There are a couple instances where it's happened. Roger Corman infamously directed the Fantastic Four for it. Um, the Atlas Shrugged movie that they made, like the part one, with um, poor poor Taylor Schilling, who's now in Orange Is the New Black, so she got out okay. Mm-hmm. That was made because the guy had held onto the rights for about 20 years, I think, and realized, I need to make a movie. So they thought, we'll make part one, we'll make all of our money back because of the free market, and we'll make the rest. And that's not quite happened. They turned to Kickstarter. Pause for irony. And we're done. <laughs> oh, God. <sighs> yeah, option happens a lot. I, I do have a bit of, um, I guess, like, I don't consider it very ethical to make bad products just so your option rights don't expire. Like, to me, it's it's a, it's a scuzzy business practice. It, it, and it's just bad business. Mm-hmm. That, that's what's most astounding, is if you were never going to adapt now, why would you rush one out in a day just so that you can hold on to the rights longer to not adapt it again? Yeah. Put the money behind it. You could probably get a Wheel of Time series made if only because Game of Thrones is doing so well. That's exactly it. You know, now... I imagine Showtime or FX, I think it was on FX that it was shown, right? Yeah, I imagine it was they so. would say, okay, let's let's give this a go. Even if it's only one season, you know, we'll get a good miniseries out of it that we can option the rights to for 45 different countries. I actually think Wheel of Time would probably be more expensive trying to think if you could make it less expensive than game of thrones but the problem is there isn't that much actual magic in game of thrones for all that it is fantasy you have dragons so there's you know a lot of effects going to that but that's about it whereas wheel of time has actual is about actual magic i mean it's not called magic in the books but you know for all intents and purposes to create just to show you how expensive this is the average episode of game of thrones takes about six million dollars to make mm-hmm. um so you would need like a hundred million dollar budget to get a 13 episode season for locations, for actors, for effects, for and, everything that you would need. And Wheel of Time has, in some ways, an even bigger cast than Game of Thrones. Like, this is in the first few books aren't going to be in five different locations, but eventually they're going to be in 10 different locations mm-hmm. <laughs> with a cast of millions. Everybody on the planet is going to be in this movie. Well, no, no, this movie doesn't have people who aren't white. Right. We left. Oh. <laughs> Come on. It's not historically accurate to have people of color 
gonna be... in your fantasy with magic. Yeah. Of course not. Oh god. Plus, you know, even as somebody who loved those books when I was a teenager and to whom they were important, I always had problems. I don't know what it is about Robert Jordan. And I'm sorry, I know that that's actually a pseudonym. I don't remember his real name off the top of my head. But that was a man who had a problem with women. The way every single, and I mean every single female character in that book is written is problematic is not even the word. It's just weird. The things that book seems to believe about women and their relationship with men or with, it's just, mm. now that that's something adaptation could greatly improve on just because I'm not sure you can make it any worse. Oh, watch fanboys try. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is held up as one of the, the geek canon that you should read instead of all of those paranormal romances, which are just Twilight knockoffs. Mm. Here's um, an adaptation that actually hasn't come out yet. Well, there's actually two I want to talk about that are upcoming. One of them we mentioned before, and that was J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy. Which is on tonight on UK TV. I am, I've seen the trailer for it. I'm it's not sure how to trailer. I don't know if you guys have got a different one from us, but that is a dark trailer. I... Me, I don't know. I I think I've seen it online, so I might have seen the UK one, but I actually felt that it wasn't as bleak as the book. Would that surprise you? I mean, I've talked about the book a few times, and it's one of those, like, the subject matter is the bleakest, but J.K. Rowling's language is, like, the most fun. There's such cognitive dissonance. that I love that book. It's so difficult. I am <laughs> so afraid of what it's going to look like to <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I want to see, like, I think I will eventually, but this will be a different, like, if they kept even remotely faithful to the book, this should be fairly difficult to watch, particularly for people who, um, for example, Sarah from Smart Bitches, like, she, she, one of the things she doesn't read is books where anything bad happens to children, and that's perfectly legitimate, like, not everybody, but a lot of bad things happen to children in the casual vacancy. Yeah. Well, the like, BBC have not given themselves an easy an easy ride with their their current year of adaptations because on top of doing the casual vacancy they're adapting jonathan strange and mr norrell which oh, is a Lord. 900 and something page historical Ten fantasy <laughs> historical fantasy drama which is set in an alternate universe napoleonic war era with magic and there are more footnotes than you know what to do with and it's not an easy book. It's a beloved book. It's a critically acclaimed book. But it is one that you could easily kill someone with. Uh-huh. But or the trailer, it, it's a really fascinating trailer they've got for it. Because they're very... It reminds me a little bit of Game of Thrones in terms of the tone of this is historical drama. Oh, and there happens to be magic. And I will watch anything that Eddie Marsan is in because I think he's a phenomenal actor. So I'm, I'm excited for it. But... It's not something I see a lot of people going to like rush out and buy the books and then realize that there's just this brick. Yeah. What the hell do I do with this? You know what's not making me happy in the upcoming adaptations? Rain, you might remember me tweeting very angrily about it, but I recently saw a trailer for an upcoming movie based on a book that I've read, and it made me hate everything <laughs> see the most read. And that book is called The Duff. Oh, Christ. Uh, <gasps> and that trailer... That, that trailer... That trailer in- that really yeah. fear makes me. So, 
the death is um <clears throat> it's a YA novel. I guess ostensibly you could call it a romance. The I I will admit you kind of have to get over the problematic plot contrivance of a girl who who hates a guy and the guy like makes fun of her. So the Duff is is an acronym this guy comes up with. It stands for designated ugly ag- ugly fat friend. And the idea is that every group of friends will have a friend who makes everybody else feel better by comparison about their physical appearance. Mm-hmm. Pretty despicable concept. And the contra- plot contrivance is that this girl thinks the guy is despicable, but one of the things she'll do is she'll sleep with him because it's kind of like, oh, he can insult me, but he still wants me kind of thing. You, mm, I had a problem with it even in the book. But the, one of the things the book does is, A, it dismantles the concept in the end by showing its fallacy, and B, it's not really a fluffy romance because this is it's all about how much all of these kids struggle with their lives, like the main character... Um, and this will be spoilers, but I don't think for the movie because I don't think the movie goes there. Her father, her parents have recently split up. Like her mom more or less abandoned the family because she now wants to go out there and do all the things she denied herself and ignores the fact that she's a parent. And her father deals with it by becoming an alcoholic and eventually becomes violent with his daughter. So this isn't a fluffy, and, and, and the book doesn't write it fluffy. I mean, this is kind of a serious thing that characters have to deal with. Um... And then the trailer, the trailer happened to be one of those promoted blogs on my Tumblr dash. Mm-hmm. And I made the mistake of viewing it and seeing that oh, they see, made it never do that. Never a do that. fluffy teen comedy. It's a fluffy teen oh. comedy starring Mae Whitman as the designated ugly fat friend. I understand Hollywood has TV ugly and ugly ugly. But when the very basis of your story is... For her to be ostracized on the basis of her looks and her weight. And she's Mae Whitman. Yes, she's Anne from Arrested Development and the joke is that she's so plain. But it's still Mae Whitman. And everyone in that film looks about 40. Yeah, everybody yeah. looks 40. Yeah, how is she playing teenagers? How is she playing? You know, the funny thing is, in some ways that's okay because the book in the end is actually about how, like, when she reveals to her friends that she's been thinking this about herself and her friends are like, the hell are you talking about? You were the prettiest of the three of us. <laughs> and it just shows kind of how all, all, a lot of teenagers are unhappy with their looks no matter what. Like she thought one of her friends was so glamorous and tall. And the friend was like, it sucks being six feet tall when you're a girl and everybody's teasing you for being mm-hmm. like the tallest. And you were so cute. And uh, like, you know, it's, it's rings true to that. But the fact that really teen comedy, so I'm guessing we're not going to have the alcoholic dad, huh? What really got me is that book is... That book has grit. I mean, it yeah. is pretty merciless about the fact that these are very screwed up and sexual teens. <laughs> there is no fluff there. And I really... No. She was actually written... Cody Keplinger, when she wrote it, I believe she was 15 or 16 at the time. And there is a sort of strange rawness to the work that shows that. And it's, that's what makes it so strong. And this is just... It's not only toothless. It's so padded out with cliches and tropes and expectations of what this kind of story should be that I can't even think about that trailer just how do you screw that up because it's not a big budget movie you could easily have made a movie of that book for the budget that this thing has given it a relatively wide release and I imagine you probably would have made your money back I mean I suppose that it is possible that what the trailer is showing is not what the movie is I saw Kingsman earlier this week, which was kind of delightful, but 
the trailers did not indicate how rawly violent and gory it is. Like, when they say it's an R, they're not kidding. Within the first ten minutes, a dude gets cut in half lengthwise, and it goes from there, and a lot of people literally get their heads blown up. And I was talking about this on Twitter, and Tessa Dare said, oh, the trailers make it look like a, you know, funny action spy comedy. Can I take the kids? And I was like, no. No. (laughs) You definitely should not. Or, (laughs) if you're think that maybe your kids can handle this please go see it first and make your own decision because like i don't know your kids and i'm not too sure how old they are but a dude gets cut in half lengthwise in the first 10 minutes and she's like oh definitely not for the darelings <laughs> do, do you remember all those people who were so angry that into the woods was not the di- yeah, live action yeah, disney trailers lie. trailers lie so it's possible that the trailer is lying here I don't know. I'm not going to go see it. I'm not going to pay money no, for it. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> but speaking of Into the Woods, that's there are other type of adaptations than, you know, book to screen. And for example, play or musical to screen is one of them. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any musicals that you actually liked better in their screen adaptations? Hmm. <sighs> or do you, th- do you think there's some that stood up or do you think they're all worse? I think it, one. I, don't I mean, think I think that's totally than... different. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't want to say, oh, this is terrible and should never have happened. Um, <laughs> I can think of a few examples of that, though. <laughs> uh, yes. Doesn't hairspray have an interesting history of like stage to to screen back to stage and in, in like a lot of translation? Hairspray was originally a John Waters movie, and it's probably the most family friendly movie John Waters has ever made. It's still weird, though. But uh, then it went and it became a Broadway musical, and then they made a film of the Broadway musical. Musical, yeah. The, the musical yeah. is far more. It, it's less subversive. It's it's less cult fan base driven. It's definitely a lot more mainstream, but it's still a really fantastic take on that material, and it's the happiest movie you'll ever see about desegregation. <laughs> My, th- I think, an interesting take on ad- adapting. Actually, several versions would be Cabaret. The movie of that is based on a musical, which is based on a play, which was based on a series of stories by Christopher Isherwood. But what the film does is it takes out a lot of the mu- a lot of the songs. So this, the music in that film is exclusively set within the club that they perform in, the Kit Kat Club. So all of the singing is them on stage. There are no moments where people just stand up from their chair and burst into song. Which I think is a very smart move, but it does create a very different story. Mm-hmm. That also made a very big change with the character of Sally Bowles in the book and in the stage musical. She's described as being a mediocre singer, so they hired Liza Minnelli in her prime. <laughs> Which is to the movie's benefit because when she belts cabaret, she belts. It's mm-hmm. a scene, but it has a totally different tone from what happens in in the on the stage show. Right. And it is, the stage show is my favourite musical of all time, so I might be a little bit biased on this front. But the, what the film does so well is it retains how bleak that story is. This is pre-Nazi Germany. Of course it's bleak. This is the only musical I can think of that has threesomes, abortions, and Nazis in it. And it's great! Right. And they didn't play that down, which surprises me in the movie, because this movie is from the 70s. And it talks about abortion pretty candidly, and even today you can't get that in a film. Um... Chicago, the movie, was pretty different from the musical, wasn't it? It's my understanding. I yeah, I think that was so, a little more... Yeah. 
it's a bit more dream driven which is that they sort of they retract into their their fantasies of being these big famous performers and then that's how the big musical numbers work primarily it's roxy's fantasy there's a couple of of scene of songs that are are actually happening within the real universe but that's like within the jazz club and one of the reasons that they cut the song class from the final movie is because roxy wasn't there and there was no way to to keep it in and still keep that conceit that these big numbers are all within her head and yet they kept mr cellophane which is I'm glad they did because I love that song. Yeah, no, but... that was that was still. They they were able to frame that since she was there. No, she wasn't. Yes, she was. She was standing there while John C. Riley is telling the story, and she's looking at him. Oh no! You're no, right. she's that's, not. No, he's the... in Billy's office. That's no, true. she's not there at all. You're she's right. not there. Right. I'm sorry, I would get confused with the. Difference. I was like, what are you talking about? Is that <laughs> I don't the music? Know what I'm talking- I don't know. You're, you're still I drunk, Raiden. Sit down. <laughs> I think you can get away with that because, in a way, that character is as driven by his own hopeless ambitions and dreams as Roxy is. Mm-hmm. But I think you need that moment for because it's it's John C. Riley and it's a great song. No, so. it's a great song. It's, I'm glad they kept it. Lapse in consistency there, but I think you can get away with it. Yeah. Just particularly because of that character, I don't think you could have got away with it with the song "Class," which is a great <laughs> song. But it, it wouldn't work at that time. But it's still in the soundtrack. Yeah. My issue with Rob Marshall is he's become the director of musicals with increasingly diminishing returns because he seems to have the same bag of tricks. And this is what happened with his adaptation of Night, where he's just like, I'm going to do the same thing that I did with Chicago, where all the musical numbers are going to be these big, sort of dreamlike moments from the stage and screen because, hey, the film is about directors. And it doesn't work. And also, Daniel Day-Lewis's Italian accent is like the uh, pizza guy out The Simpsons. It's nice to know that he isn't infallible, but it's just... It's a sad adaptation of what is actually a very underrated musical. It doesn't have as many instantly catchy numbers as something like Chicago. But there's a lot to love there. I really like that. You also have to hire people who can you know, work with that kind of musical material. I don't think they necessarily have to be stage singers, but they can, you know, they have to emote, they have to do it properly. Yeah. I thought the the attempt at the the adaptation of Les Mis, where they were singing live, was a really interesting idea, and I think it worked primarily for well, <laughs> those actors who were actually singers. <laughs> and, I mean, e- even Russell Crowe's like, <laughs> that didn't work for me and you can tell but I mean, he was he tried his best Les Mis is My interesting because it's book to stage to screen so it's like layers of adaptation right and that's an incredibly smart musical for the way that it adapted it because that is a dense book and they've cut out the fat they've focused it on the characters they've had those interactions really meld together in a surprisingly efficient manner my issue with the film of Les Mis is that Tom Hooper needs to get away from the freaking camera. <laughs> Turn the camera to it's not on its side. Not everything has to be a Dutch angle. And stop the close-ups. This is a big epic story and you're so focused on close-ups. Yeah. That is a case where the director's choice just... It was an ambitious choice. I, you know, He's an Oscar winner, so of course they would go for Tom Hooper. But if you're, you need someone who understands the scope. 
and he didn't. Yeah, and <laughs> Lamez is nothing if nothing if not bombastic. I mean, I have I've read the book a couple of times and well, a couple of times game. A couple wow. of times, I know, right? I know. <laughs> I've only finished it twice. <laughs> um but I mean Hugo he always has a point for his digressions. And he just makes sure that you understand exactly why he needed to spend 50 pages on the geography of the Battle of Waterloo. Just to point out how these two side characters who meet exactly once, one of which is never seen again, how that relates into the larger narrative for 50 fucking pages just on the geography. Imagine what that song would have been like. <laughs> That would have been its own musical under itself. Yes. <laughs> Somebody write that for Edinburgh Fringe next year. Do it. Do it. I Somebody years and years ago, I want to say 1994, did a 24-hour long production of Ulysses. So... <laughs> I have actually seen a stage production of Ulysses. It was only two and a half hours long. It was surprisingly How? good. I, I almost fell asleep, but that was nothing to do with the material. I was just really tired. <laughs> I didn't write that in the review, by the way. The review was much better than that. Here's a here's a, a book book to a stage that might be going to screen, and that's Wicked. And yeah. it's interesting because it's my understanding that the play really has nothing to do with the book. The book is strange. is itself kind of a fanfic too. I mean, it is this very just... weirdly sexual, very very political piece of work that has a deeply unlikable, conflicted terrorist as its lead. And there is like a long paragraph describing her pubic hair in one bit of that book, which they cut from the stage musical, strangely. <laughs> I, I, I think it was a very savvy adaptation because you take this story, which is not in any way for kids, and you make it something that is not only a, a, appealable and accessible to all ages, but has the yay sisterhood element. And I think that works a lot better than the book in many ways. Although the book's sequel I actually really like. I like it more Son than of the Witch. Son of a Witch. I like yeah. it more than I like Wicked. The issue as well with those books is Gregory Maguire's writing style is very distinctive and I know some people just can't stand it. Yep. But you either get it or you don't. It's, it's strange to read. I can't quite describe it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's trying very hard to be the anti L. Frank Baum, I think. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, trying to yeah, he has the stories that are not fantastical. Putting words together. He did a version of, like, his version of Snow White, which is called Mirror Mirror, is about the Borgias. Yeah. And it's weird. Yeah. I, I really do kind of like his out-of-the-box versions of fairy tales. Um, Confessions of an Ugly yeah, Stepsister step is Cinderella set amongst the tulip stock booms in the Netherlands. The only one I've read was the Jack the Ripper one. I think it's called Ghost. It's been I years. I remember liking it, but it, it was also kind of a multi-layered, multi-time story. He's I an interesting he's just writer. Happy to be cashing the royalty checks. Yeah. 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 I, I imagine a wicked movie will get made, if only because they're going to try and bank on Frozen. Well, but I was I was checking uh, Wikipedia before I brought it up just to make sure it's been. Uh, I mean, it's for sure been optioned, but actually seems to be actively in the works for a 2016 release date. At least yeah, they, I remember seeing an announcement about that a couple of weeks ago, and everyone's like, well... Yeah, we'll see if that happens. Um, 
a kind of adaptation we haven't brought up yet, but I do want to touch on because I have a lot of feelings about it. I'm sure we all do. Is what Disney does to books. <laughs> I think Disney make very savvy business decisions that don't always work as creative decisions, but I get why they make them. Yeah, I mean, like the Jungle Book. The Jungle Book <sighs> is a dark story, and that film is sanitized to a point where I feel like Roger Rudyard is pulling in his grave. The Jungle Book makes me so angry. I think part of it is, and I think I've brought it up before, is the Russian cartoon, which has Akela, and it has Baloo as the wise mentor. And watching what Disney did to Baloo, it kind oh my god, it, it offended me on this kind of personal level that I guess only, like, the inner five-year-old me can fully explain, but how could you? I have not quite as extreme reaction to Little Mermaid. Like, I love Little Mermaid, the cartoon, but of course, it's just nothing to do with the book. Mm-hmm. Which is in many ways a good thing, because who wants to read Hans Christian Andersen's devastated kind of misogynist breakup tale? Yeah, to be <laughs> fair, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a fairy tale where, you know, she gives all of us... Not only... They, they skip the part where walking on these new legs always feels to her like walking on a knife. She's always in physical pain. And the prince is like, oh, you're such a pretty orphan I found. You get to sleep on a rug at the foot of my bed. Yeah. What? I what? feel like if, if Hans Christian Andersen was alive today, he would be on Twitter under Guy in your MFA account. Uh, what a yes. nice guy he is. Oh yes, yes he would. That is accurate. I'm kind of a a terrible, terrible philistine on the Disney front because my favorite Disney movie is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that on a movie forum one time and says I love you, but I can't talk to you right now. <laughs> that it's it kind of shits over Hugo. Oh, wow. And yet, I love it. I love yeah. it that it goes darker than Disney's ever gone, with the exception of maybe The Black Cauldron, which is another adaptation thing we oh. can get into. Mm. I love that it is unremittingly committed to the exploration of the Judge Frollo character and actually gives him a song that is badass and very, very Disney. Yeah. I there used to and be a yet incredibly of, sexual. Yeah. Yeah. That basic the basic point of Hellfire is I don't know whether to kill this woman or rape her. Yep. Yeah. Um, there used to be a version of that movie on YouTube that had entirely cut the gargoyles out, which is <laughs> the way I prefer to watch it. Um, I get what I feel like those gargoyles there was a studio mandate. I feel like someone at Disney, maybe Jeffrey Katzenberg, was saw a cut of the film and was like, Geez, you can't put this out. Dear God, put something in that'll be happy for kids. It's like, what do you want? I don't know, there's I, yeah, I mean, the goat. I don't hate it, but the fact that Phoebus is now a good guy. Yeah, there's a musical version, which I haven't seen. My sister's seen it, and I have the soundtrack, which is apparently only like half the soundtrack, called Notre Dame de Paris. Yes, which I, has fantastic music. music. Oh. And it totally ends with everybody like terrible or dead or both. I, I have the song Belle, uh, actually, in, in uh, French and in Russian, because Russia did not actually translate an adaptation of that musical. Oh, my God, the music in that. I want to say that musical originated in Canada, but I'm not entirely sure that's true, but I feel like that's what I've read. The May Disney musical of The Hunchback of Notre Dame was very big in Germany, and the English language version of it is now currently playing, I don't think it's off-Broadway, but I certainly think it's playing in New York somewhere. 
because they're aiming for Broadway because Disney must dominate Broadway. You got to strengthen the brand, people. Yeah. That's what everything to do with Disney adaptations is about. It's about strengthening the brand. It's about how many products can you make. It's about how many Oscar nominations can you get Alan Menken. It's about how many wonderful colorful dresses can you make for $24 a pop to sell in a store. And it's evil genius, but it works. They've plumbed the depths of the nostalgia of the Western world ages 12 to 35, and it works. Which is why we have Maleficent, which is why we're getting Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, which is why we're getting Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson. I can't wait. I hear Ryan Gosling is up for the Beast, so... Ooh. No. Uh, I don't know, actually. Oh, but correction to my previous statement, the Notre Dame de Paris premi premiered in Paris, but it was by a Quebecois um, composer, so... Or lyricist, actually. So it, it, it is kind of a Canadian produced, but debuted in France. Oh, should we talk about Wolf Hall a little bit? I've yeah. been really Yeah, it doesn't start airing in the US until April. Like everything else! Let us enjoy <laughs> our joy over this, that we get something before Americans for a change. Well, yeah, you also got the Hollow Crown like a full year and a half before us. Oh, yeah. And you'll I'm, get the I'm Hollow not... Crown part two <laughs> eventually someday. Yes. The, I haven't read Wolf Hall. I've read the play of Wolf Hall because I got it for cheap. Um, so that's really my only basis of comparison there. That and every other adaptation of stories about the Tudor monarchy. Mm -hmm. which Of which there are many. Which are many. I, some of them are what? good. Yeah, and some, some of them, are, them are not. Hi, Philippa Gregory. Philippa. Why don't you have a seat? What is it about Anne you don't like? Have you thought about apologising to Anne? She'll apologise too. Shake hands. Shake. If you don't shake hands, you're as bad as she is, Anne. <laughs> the thing I really like about Wolf Hall is it's willing to treat its audience with a modicum of intelligence. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it expects its audience to keep up, and I like that. It's also beautifully acted. Damien Lewis is such a He's a strategist, but he's also entirely ruled by his reduced codpiece. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he really nails that. But Mark Rylance is a straight-up revelation. He's more <gasps> um, known for his stage work. So I think this is the first chance for a lot of people, in the UK certainly, to see how good of an actor he is. And he has this very complex character who is the smartest person in the room at all times but can't let anyone know he's the smartest person in the room at all times. And he has to balance all of these egos with all of these plans. He has to play nice to one person while stabbing them in the back in the next scene, but always do it in a way that never draws too much attention to himself. He's never supposed to be the man at the centre. He's always the man behind the king. And I think a lot of this is just because Mantel's book is apparently so wonderful. And from what I've been told, it's a very honest adaptation of that book. But that is one that is knocking it out of the park. And it's doing very well in the UK right now. I think it is currently the highest rated show on BBC Two. Mm. Because mm. it might be being Top Gear, which is great, because Top Gear is terrible. <laughs> I, I think they're going... I don't know if they're adapting Bring Up the Bodies now, but I think they are planning on doing it. Because if you go into all the bookshops in the UK, um, mm. Damien Lewis as Henry VIII is on every copy of Bring Up the Bodies. Mm -hmm. Which I'm not complaining about. And I know that the final part of that series the book is coming soon i don't know how soon but before george rr R. martin finishes 
Winds of Winter, but after Harbor Lee's new one comes out. Oh, that's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But her yep. lawyer says it's okay, guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. If you want to talk about an adaptation that's really great, the To Kill a Mockingbird film is stupendous. <laughs> My mom is obsessed with that movie. She's seen it so many times. Yeah, I think one thing we can definitely thank Game of Thrones for is the idea of taking books that are unadaptable as two-hour movies and making them into TV series or miniseries. Um, that's how you've got Outlander. That's how you got Outlander. That's how you got Wolf Hall. And um, I have and have only watched the first episode of The White Queen, which is a... BBC and I think Showtime joint production of again Philippa Gregory's The White Queen, The Red Queen and The Kingmaker's Daughter which is about the end of the War of the Roses and the beginning of the Tudor monarchy since uh, Elizabeth and Anne aren't actually involved I, I've only read The White Queen I don't recall a, a huge helping of random haterade that she reserves for Anne and Elizabeth I just feel like Philippa Gregory needs a dream journal or something just to really let all of her thoughts out. Yeah. But that is an interesting point that so much of the great adaptations right now because of the less restrictions are happening on television right now. There are more uh, TV channels than there have ever been thanks to cable, thanks to s digital streaming services like Hulu and Amazon who are creating their own content. Uh, it's easier to have these partnerships between places like the BBC and Showtime or I believe HBO have a big hand in Wolf Hall as well mm -hmm. or they certainly have a big hand in a lot of the work going on in BBC right now so you get these bigger stories it's, there's more risks being taken on television I think right now well for the past well yeah I mean that's what we've been saying for the past couple of years I mean the TV renaissance what for the past seven or maybe even generously even say ten years it's been Happening. I know I, a lot of people pinpoint it to the rise of HBO, but I think it's been more focused with places like the rise of AMC as well as Showtime. Yeah. The fact that mm -hmm. even stars are doing legitimate content now instead of just showing movies, mm -hmm. and it's paying off for them. Yeah, and for in kind of a little bit more recently, maybe the the new age of the miniseries, kind of the short form TV, has been getting more attention. I hope that continues because I know it's something that a lot of American uh, channels tend to avoid. They mm -hmm. want a longer run. But you have something like HBO adapting all of Kitteridge to a mm -hmm. two-part series, um, which really felt like two movies more than anything else. But it was really well done, which and it's also a tough book to adapt because that book is a series of short stories that tell the story instead of one book. Well. I just think that you're right. American TV needs to start appreciating the miniseries more. Just there's so many um, uh, pros to it. It, it the, for one thing, you know, you can put more quality because you're not spreading the script out, and you're not you don't have to have like just filler episodes. But also because you can attract bigger talent to it because the actors don't have to commit to the 24 episode season if they just commit to the six the episode miniseries you can attract really big name both actors and directors to it right i i don't think it's that american tv needs to embrace it american tv needs to go back to it it used to be it used to be back in the day when <laughs> rocks were soft 
the miniseries were an event and you'd have a two or three night thing mm-hmm. um, like the Tenth Kingdom was one of those or uh, since I totally didn't prep this line of thought and I was oh. small then I, I mean this was a thing that, that American Roots, TV did in the maybe? Was that Roots, a big event? Roots, Queen um, and I think maybe that category at the Emmys was a little bit bigger than it is now as opposed to just sort of the thing you throw in the middle of when people have gotten up to go pee or get some food or whatever because no one gives a fuck. Um, but certainly we're seeing the trend of embracing shorter TV series seasons um, even on broadcast like Agent Carter or Sleepy Hollow the first season you know when it was awesome and uh, Penny Dreadful, which I think was actually weakened by having only an eight-episode run as opposed to a ten. I think a ten-episode run would have been better for that show. I think it's the upcoming season is ten. I think oh. so. And by the way, the second season trailer looks so oh good. Oh my god! Oh my god! So good. Sissy Malfoy, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Going home to Damian Lewis every night—that's what. You get it, girl. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> high fives all round. Yeah, but you're saying HBO are really embracing miniseries right now. If you look at their upcoming lineup, they have more than a few planned. So clearly HBO have realised, you know, there is a lot of maybe not commercial appeal here, but there's certainly critical prestige. Mm-hmm. And no network on TV right now can chase critical prestige like HBO. Maybe PBS, but they can coast on Downton Abbey. So. <laughs> Only for another year, though. About damn time. <laughs> How have we done this for an hour and a half and avoided the big elephant in the room of the comic book adaptations? There's well, something we're just all worried about the inevitable fatigue that's going to hit in over the next two years because about 90% of all of the big blockbuster movies coming out are comic oh. book adaptations. It's, it's also interesting, I think, to compare how they're doing in movies versus how they're doing on TV, where I think DC definitely has Marvel outstripped on the TV front. Yeah. I, I may just be saying it because, you know, Raiden and I are diehard Arrow fans. <laughs> but, of course, Marvel has those Netflix series coming up, and it has a chance to really show what it can do in a, in a somewhat different broadcast format than just, like, the, you know, that it did with the semi-failed Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's okay, not semi-failed. It was somewhat disappointing. It started off somewhat. It did get better. It got Most better. Yeah. Which is... And we'll, we'll see how it, comes, how it does after it comes back from hiatus in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Are um, the Netflix Marvel series going to tie into the wider Marvel verse in the same way that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and... They're going to tie into each other. They're going to, right. I believe, culminate with a big like crossover with themselves. Because, well, I, I really admire the ambition that Marvel have done not just for, I know it's for branding, but for creative purposes of having everything tied together in this big expanded universe in a way that DC aren't doing but I think DC have more freedom because of their lack of ties. So you can make the Flash and Arrow TV series and you don't need to worry about having those characters come into the movie when they can, yeah. for example. And they can have different stories, they can have different personalities and such to match the tone and the aims of the film. So, you know, I don't think that 
the flash of the TV series is going to be anything like the one that Ezra, what's his name, is going to be in the film. Mm -hmm. But then you also, um, I think you, there's a way of expectations that is always inevitably going to follow, and that's either going to crush us or make it. And I think right now Gotham is struggling. I haven't watched it since it came back. It has not turned into the Oswald Cobblepot fun time hour, so... <laughs> I have missed really that. <laughs> <There's> that. <laughs> the issue, they, they're still struggling to identify themselves separate of this is going to be the Batman show. Yeah. In, they're about to introduce a character who it is hinted as the Joker. I'm hoping that's a red herring. One, because the guy playing him just looks terrible. And two, because I think that would be too predictable. You don't need to establish these big guys in that way. I mean, you've already got the Penguin's going to come in. You've already got the Riddler's going to come in. The Riddler's actually gotten a little more interesting because he clearly just does not want to have to deal with Oswald's shit. <laughs> but that just really makes me want a TV show where Oswald is trying to be the best criminal underlord that there is and constantly screwing up Well, um Edward's just in the background giving him riddles and shaking his head. So here's Why a question. Maybe Gotham would have been better off where instead of being about Commissioner Gordon, it was a show about the villains becoming supervillains before the rise of Batman. Well, isn't that really going to be the Suicide Squad? <sighs> well, no, because the Suicide Squad is... It's not really about the rise of the villains, right? Like, it's about them working yeah. for Amanda Waller. But what I mean is Gotham, to me, always had this quintessential problem is that its hero, James Gordon, has to fail because, well, if he doesn't fail, what the hell do we need Batman for? Gotham has to fall to these supervillains. So why not a show about the supervillains? Like, it should be the Oswald Cobblepot hour. <laughs> Fun time hour. I feel like if this show gets cancelled, Netflix will pick it up and it will just end up being the Oswald show. And we will all love it and it will be the best show ever. <laughs> and his psychotic mother. Yeah. The show needs more Carol Kane. That's one of the big problems. <laughs> She's not in it enough. But I understand, I, I, I'm glad that they're not going the Marvel route with DC. I know they're going to try and do it with the Justice League and such. But there is a very appealing creative freedom that comes with ha keeping your universes separate. Mm. And yeah, I would like I mean, to see Marvel do that more, but I don't think they will. Because, you know, money. Yeah, well, I've been really kind of impressed with how Marvel has been managing the cinematic universe. And working to keep all of the balls in the air and in concert with each other. I mean, that's hard. That's really the only thing I had to say about that. Is well, that I've there's been, the Spider-Man news. Kind of like, not only is Marvel holding onto it, but they are actively trying to get their other properties back into it, like they now have worked out the deal with Spider-Man. And, uh... yep, and now we're delaying the Black Panther and the Captain, and the Captain Marvel. Oh my god. Because mm. yeah. that's, you know... I will say well, if the rumor about the Captain Marvel director choice is true, I am even more excited than I was before. What's the rumor? Angelina Jolie. <gasps> oh, I just got tingles. Okay, so Unbroken is not a brilliant movie, mm -hmm. but it proves that Angelina Jolie would one day be a phenomenal action director. The first five minutes of that movie are fantastic. I think she would be a stellar addition to the team. I think she could nail that movie. I know the rumor is going around that they want her to play the character as well, but no. I don't know. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I mean, don't she... think she would play him. That's the thing. I don't think she would direct herself in that front. I know she's currently directing herself in a movie with Brad Pitt, but it's a much smaller movie. It's a totally different thing from doing an action film. Yeah, she has directed herself before, but yeah. I think only... 
It's coming out this year, I believe. Yeah, she, I think she directed herself in Beyond Borders. She directed that, right? I know she produced did it. Did she? I, I think know. so. Um, but she didn't direct herself in uh, the Serbian movie. She's not in that one at all, no. Yeah. Which is called Land of Blood and Honey. It's not called a Serbian movie. That is a totally different movie. Right. You, you know what I meant, though. You yeah. Know what I meant. I think that it's about scope and scale, and Unbroken yeah. was a big movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas this thing that she's doing with Brad Pitt, from what I understand, it's mostly a sort of small, intimate relationship drama. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a big difference. I, I think that she would be an excellent Captain Marvel director. Yeah. And listen up, Marvel. Avery Duvernay has said she'd love to direct a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we do have a female director for Wonder Woman, and it's uh, Michelle Monaghan. Michelle McLaren. McLaren. Is, is that one of the Game of Thrones? Came yes. off yeah. Game of Thrones, which I think that we are seeing a a very slow but very definite sea change in female directors and writers in TV that's moving into show running and directing feature films. And I think that's a definite positive for the world in general. Um, And that's one thing we can thank, another thing we can thank Game of Thrones for. I would like to bring something up because there's something actually unique to the superhero adaptations that is not true for any other. Because they are adapting a medium that is a story that is always ongoing and kind of doesn't have an endpoint, doesn't have one creator, you know, is, is an organic thing. These adaptations bring up a fear in fans that is not present. You know, nobody is afraid that George Martin is going to change his books because of what, because, like, it's it's going to rewrite the next, you know, 10 books because of what's on TV. A lot of people are, well, at least I've noticed a lot of people worrying that the comic books are going to change because of the movies, because Marvel doesn't own, for example, the X-Men rights. People are afraid that Marvel, the comics, might push back some of their X-Men titles in order to promote the Inhumans instead. There's a kind of um, a possibility of a feedback um, that, that, that for fans is, is unique to this particular adapta- series of adaptations. And I think that's interesting. There's a big issue with the way that the comics industry works in terms of handling their adaptations and working to promote their work because of the adaptations. There's so many reboots and there's so many, you know, internal strife that's going on there. I definitely understand fan Mm -hmm. problems. I would love it if Marvel got the X-Men rights back. I think they would have to claw off someone's face to get them. (laughs) Basically, they're going to have to hope North Korea hacks into Fox's emails because I'm pretty sure that's the reason they got Spider-Man back. Well, yeah, they revealed that there was uh, negotiations that didn't work out, and I guess they didn't want to look like they're holding it, especially considering that the amazing Spider-Man. I feel so sorry for Andrew Garfield because I felt like he would have loved. Well, yeah. he would have loved to have been in the. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But now I'm he's... sad that we're with all the potential that you could get with this new Spider-Man. I'm sad that it, they won't. I don't think they'll deviate from the origin story stuff. I think it's going to be another origin, at least hinted in some way, and I think it's going to be Peter Parker. Well, My, Miles Morales has not been around long enough 
to warrant the starring role of a Marvel movie. I get that. It's disappointing, but I get it. Just in the way they're not going to give Kamala Khan her own movie, even though she deserves one. Oh, yeah. That'll be awesome. Give her her own Netflix series. That'll be amazing. Yeah. So I understand in a business point of view, but from the creative point, this is one of the issues I have with Marvel laying out their plan until like 2024 or something. You, I don't feel like there's anything at stake because you know that there, there's going to be a certain amount of characters that have to live long enough to get to the final Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they won't surprise me. I mean, for all I know, they could slaughter off Tony Stark and Captain America or whatever, but the risk is severely diminished because you know that they're going to do Civil War and we all know what happens in Civil War. And we know that the expectations that come with that. So when you are a director who's working towards that set formula, I understand there must be difficulties. So you're not going to hire an auteur to do that. You're going to hire... Joss Whedon is an auteur to an extent, but he also knew how to work within the system. You've got... The guy that's directing Doctor Strange is not an auteur. He's someone who likes the material, but I don't think he's going to deviate too much from the studio notes. Mm-hmm. Which is fine, because it could still end up being a great movie if you ignore the casting. <laughs> well, what's... I'm, I'm not over that. I'm going to bring up every episode. <laughs> the thing about Peter Parker versus Miles Morales, and I would love for it to be Miles Morales, but uh, my my personal senior comics correspondent, which is my coworker, has brought up an interesting point where it kind of has, according to him, it kind of has to be Peter for what Spider-Man does in the Civil War storyline. Like, it has to be, like, specifically a Peter Parker uh, but that doesn't mean that it has to be Peter in the subsequent solo titles. They could do a handoff, handoff, you know, like it could be Peter Parker in the Civil War, and then the next movie could be about him handing it off to Miles Morales. Well, I don't, I don't know, because we don't really know what the Civil War storyline is going to be in the movies, because the, the idea of the Civil War storyline in the comics is... It's an X-Men related, right? It is, well, I mean, it's X-Men related, and it's also... Release the names of all the superheroes. Yeah. Everybody fucking knows that Iron Man yeah. is Tony Stark. Everybody <laughs> knows that Steve Rogers is Captain America. Like, none of these are secrets. Everybody fucking knows. So, what's going to be the actual thing? Which is why the Civil War meme has taken up such traction. And it's delightful. And apparently Robert Downey Jr. loves it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> that said, I could see them finding some ways to fit it into the the Captain America that they wrote for the movies because with the last movie you had Steve who's saying like this modern world with like the the anti-terrorism measure in the modern world you know that's not the democracy I fought for this is this is this is fear so you could see where Captain this Steve Rogers is the character who would take umbrage with the way the modern world handles privacy yeah so they could find some way to work that I think that would be pretty consistent with the characters they built because I don't think Tony Stark is necessarily going to be the guy that's like yeah, you know, that's fighting for the rights of privacy against the big businesses because he's mm-hmm. part of that universe and he's also very happy to have his face out there. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to see what happens, but I, I, I've heard the suggestion that it will start with Peter Parker, Peter Parker will die and it will be handed off to someone else. Mm-hmm. So I, would, I think that would be interesting. I think it would be risky for Marvel to do and that's one of the reasons I'd like to see that happen. I don't blame them for sticking to their their pattern, their set formula, because, you know, they're a business and that's what they do. But, you know, they're at the point where they could get away with doing bigger risks. They're at the point where they could have gotten away with casting someone who wasn't Benedict Cumberbatch in that role. 
if 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 there's one thing they've proven is that they do not need the big names to make billions of dollars of these movies. So Which I is don't. Why I hope they get interesting with the Captain Marvel casting. Mm-hmm. Still, I will root for Anna Torp until the day the movie opens. <laughs> Wendell and Christie. Oh my God! Yes. Right. Right. How, how many Star Wars movies has she signed up for? Yeah, that's that. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find how old Gwendolyn Christie is because I'm hung up on how she old. She said she doesn't know how old she is. That's right. <laughs> she said that her mother never noted how old she was. She asked how old she was, and she said, "I don't know." So, okay. Well, I mean, okay. she's listed as in her late 30s, so okay. Yeah, I guess she... age-wise, I'm so scared they'll cast like some 20-year-old to yeah. play Captain Marvel. Yeah, you can't do that. No. I mean, I love their Black Panther casting. I think that is spot on. I just hope that they get a director to match. Yeah, we'll see. Like <laughs> I'm okay with her give, being given most films now. I, I saw Selma <laughs> on Friday, and it was just superb. Oh my god, I, that movie was so good. No. I have never seen a film before where the entire audience waited until the end credits were finished to leave. It was just, it was stunning. It's not an adaptation, but it is a brilliant movie. Go see Selma. <laughs> Don't see Fifty Shades. Go see Selma. Or go see Jupiter Ascending. Or go see okay. Kingsman. People, Jupiter Ascending. What What do people have against fun? <laughs> it is the most fun you'll have in theaters. Why aren't you seeing it? <laughs> that is the Eddie Redmayne I want in every movie. Eddie Redmayne <laughs> is sexy Voldemort and Channing Tatum is space marine wolf angel. What do you have against fun? someone to swap in when Eddie Redmayne's name gets mentioned at the Oscars for the worthy Stephen Hawking biopic. I want them to play a clip of him in yep. Tim Curry mode. NPH yeah. would do it. NPH would totally do it. <laughs> we know you listen to us, Neil. Do it. <laughs> we'll start a Kickstarter for your bribe. It's fine. All right. I- I'm just glad he had fun. I-, I don't think anyone in that movie knows what's going on. But they're really having fun. Did you see a bit, which, I don't remember which talk show she, he was on, but he was oh, talking I about know. how he had to, like, get in shape for the abs scene, and then it wasn't even in the movie, but he was like, but I had abs! And nobody saw that! Yeah, so Conan had a portrait painted of him with no shirt, so you could see the abs. He had the abs hung on his wall. But, so, I think we, we've covered this pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Our thoughts on the genre of adaptation. It's yep. here to stay. We've just... gone on long enough for you to manage a typical Boston commute this winter. Seriously, <laughs> the roads are so bad. <laughs> Public transportation is basically gone. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> so this has been episode 29. And we've... we will see you next month on a topic yet to be determined. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a made-of-fail production.